Um, so as a historian, I'm in the middle of a uh, long-term research project concerned with religion in the lives of 18th century children. And my talk today emerges from that interest. Um, I'm slipping a little further back in history today into the 17th century, as you can see. Um, and this is for two reasons. First, as library director at Regent, um, I have access to a wonderful collection of antiquarian Puritan books, many of which were donated by Dr. Packer, who's often here. And um, that collection has a particularly fine selection of books by John Bunyan. And second, 18th century children read 17th century books. So this is part of my reason for going back in time a little bit from my usual period. Um, in the autumn, some of you might remember that I gave a talk at Learners Exchange entitled John Bunyan and Early Children's Literature. And in my enthusiasm to trace the emergence of children's literature and to explain how Bunyan was remarkable for anticipating later developments, I didn't give myself enough time to actually examine his particular contribution to early children's literature, that is, his book for boys and girls, or Country Rhymes for Children. Uh, and this was published in 1686, as you can, say, you can see. So this is what I promised to do today. Uh, fill in some of what I had to skip over last time. But first, very quickly, again, a brief biographical introduction to John Bunyan. This is the man himself. Um, Bunyan uh, was a Puritan minister and author of religious books, including his enormously popular Pilgrim's Progress. And this is a photo, actually, from our rare books collection at Regent. It's a very early printing of the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, after the Bible and the plays of Shakespeare, Bunyan's writings have been foremost among the books of the English-speaking world. Pilgrim's Progress is regarded as one of the most significant works of religious English literature. It has been translated into more than 200 languages, and it has never been out of print. And also, Dr. Packer thinks that all of you should read it. So, he, he would say so, I'm, I'm sure, if he was here. Yeah. He, yeah. he reads it once a year, or maybe he has it read to him now, once a year. That's true. Yep. Bunyan's life spanned the major religious and political events of 17th century Britain, including long periods of intolerance for ministers who did not conform to the established or Anglican church. And as a result of not conforming, Bunyan spent more than 13 years in prison. In addition to Pilgrim's Progress, Bunyan published 42 other books, including a book for boys and girls. So, a book for boys and girls. Sorry, here we go. Uh, a Book for Boys and Girls, or Country Rhymes for Children, was the only book Bunyan wrote that was meant especially for young readers. It may be difficult to see at this distance of years how revolutionary this book was, engaging with its young readers through delight and enticement um, in an approach that would only truly gain ground in the centuries following Bunyan. 
very few in the 17th century recognized children as a special audience uh, in its requirements and capabilities and thus deserving of a literature of their own. A Book for Boys and Girls is a collection of 72, or sorry, 74 poems ranging from four to 192 lines long and each work uh, each working to illustrate some aspect of God's ways to children, but using only those occupations, objects, creatures, and experiences that children in rural England would know. So it was homely and down to earth. And these poems develop a strategy of pleasing in order to instruct that makes them almost unique among early examples of children's literature. By contrast, Another children's book of the period, and one that I've spent quite a bit of time with in my research and writing, is James Janeway's A Token for Children, which was published in 1671. Janeway's very popular little book, this was, this was an incredibly popular book, published over and over and over again. It tells the stories of 13 godly children as they cheerfully succumb to death. Um, <laughs> some of the scenes in this book are surprising well many of them are surprising but um, like a deathly ill child who would uh, jump up in his bed snapping his fingers um, is one that particularly sticks with me <laughs> and, and then he you know sweetly fell asleep in Jesus uh, which is sort of the echo throughout the book Isaac Watts's collection of poems divine songs attempted in easy language for the use of children uh, which was published in 1715, deals in danger, caution, and the threat of hellfire. The child who does not heed his teacher's or his parent's word, for example, can expect that, quote, raven shall pick out his eyes and eagles eat the same. Against the background, backdrop of cautionary tales and earnest accounts of blessed early deaths, Bunyan's book for, book, sorry, book for Boys and Girls is refreshing, refreshingly cheerful in its tone and attractive in its examples. Indeed, its prefatory poem to the reader announces the purpose of the collection in contrast to such ministers, those that would frighten. So here he says, does anybody have um, experience reading 17th century script? Yeah, okay. So some, some things to look out for are um, this elongated S is not an F, so this is ministers. Um, it's usually, it can catch on real quickly, but that can make you stumble at first. So um, our ministers, long time by word and pen, dealt with them, counting them, not boys, but men. Thunderbolts they shot at them and their toys, but bit them nor... Hit. Sorry? Hit. 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 Hit's probably better than bit. Yeah. <laughs> but hit them more because they were girls and boys. Yeah. And that thing about before the they, that uh, there's a funny... Here? Uh, the, just the, the before they, the, the word before they, the they before the E. Is that another S? Apples. Cause. Cause, yeah. So, because. 
Yeah. Yeah. And this is a little bit, um, this is not the clearest text. This is clearer. Um, so this is what Bunyan says that he's going to do. While by their playthings I would them entice to mount their thoughts from what are childish toys to heaven, for that's prepared for girls and boys, nor do I confine myself to these, as to shun graver things I seek to please, those more composed with better things than toys, though thus I would be catching girls and boys. So this is the difference. This is what he's trying to do in the book here. Um, his method is to use those things that children know and are naturally pleased with to draw them on to thoughts of God and heaven. Bunyan started where children were, with what he saw they already valued. He explored only those things that would be familiar to children in any farm town in rural England. Eggs, swallows, cuckoos, larks, and moles. Flies, candles, snails, sun, and fish. Bell ringing, looking glasses, and papers. Music, plums, butterflies, and flint. These are all subjects that he takes up in his poems. These things then became patterns of higher things in his poems. More than elevating the everyday, Bunyan offered another way to read God's will. Puritans were invited to read the Bible as the first book, but also to see the world itself or nature as another book, where God lays out all one needs to know, could one but read and meditate upon it. His poems offer children a way to read the book of the world, to go to school with spiders, and to learn from ants, birds, fish, and insects, just as the verses may help children read them enough to tackle the Bible on their own, so they offer a way to read the world. In Bunyan's little book, we see a demonstration of how a child might read God's book of the world. Roughly half of the poems deal with human subjects of activity, and the other half with the natural world. Only a few fit poems fit in either category. Through it all, one senses a tender and genuine love for children. So first, a book for boys and girls and human activities. In Of the Boy and Butterfly, seen here, uh, the opening describes a boy vainly chasing the butterfly that will escape him, that will always escape him. Behold how eager this, our little boy, is of this butterfly, as if all joy, all profits, honors, yea, and lasting pleasures were wrapped up in her, or the richest treasures found in her would be bundled all together when all her all is lighter than a feather. Uh, in a collection in which the, the verse tends to be workmanlike rather than graceful, these lines are among the most conspicuously rhetorical with alliteration and repetition, all, all, all her all, as if the language itself would take flight, although these means are, are used to conjure an image of false importance. So the second stanza. He hallows, runs, and cries out, Here, boys, here, nor doth he brambles, or the nettles fear. He stumbles at the moleholes, up he gets, and runs again as one bereft of wits. And all this labor and this large outcry is only for a silly butterfly. And the, the boy in this stanza hallows, runs, and cries out, Here, boys, here, all oblivious to falls, brambles, and nettles. 
The poem, however, deals gently with the foolish boy. Bunyan often explained his poems in what he called comparisons, as here. So this is the, the next page to the poem, a comparison. Um, this little boy, an emblem, is of those whose hearts are holy at the world's dispose. The butterfly doth represent to me the world's best things as best but fading be. All are but painted nothings and false toys, like this poor butterfly, to these are boys. His running through nettles, thorns, and briars to gratify his boyish fond desires, his tumbling over molehills to attend, his end, namely, his butterfly to gain, does plainly show, show uh, what hazards some men run to get what will be lost as soon as won. Men seem in choice, then children far more wise, because they run not after butterflies. When yet, alas, for what are empty toys, they follow children like to beardless boys. Um, harsh censure is saved for the grown men who ought to know better and yet still chase metaphorical butterflies. In another poem of the child with the bird in the at the bush, which is set to music, actually, you can see here, um, a child actor again figures in a chase of sorts, but this time the child's intention is to save the flying creature from harm. Here the child speaker is a type of Christ, eager to coax the bird to safety and away from thorns, storms, kites and snares, and offering instead warmth, good food, silks, occupation, and a palace. I'll teach thee all the notes at court, Unthought of music thou shalt play, and all that thither do resort shall praise thee for it every day. And yet in the end, the bird flies away, preferring danger, perhaps not understanding the child's call. The comparison here, per, uh, perhaps a little heavy-handedly, identifies the child as Christ and the bird as sinner's. The bird's own songs are foolish toys which to destruction lead the way. And the poem concludes here. The arguments this child doth choose to draw to him a bird thus wild. Choose Christ, familiar speech doth use to make to him be reconciled. The comparison not only suggests the child's and by extension Christ's method, which is to use the familiar to draw the sinner forth, it also mirrors Bunyan's own method throughout the collection. Familiar language and appeals draw the bird, the sinner, and the child reader. Here the child becomes a figure not just of Christ, but also of the poet, who coaxes rather than frightens, whoever, who coaxes rather than frightens. However lovely and encouraging the poem, however, the foolish bird ignores the call and flies away. In the end, the focus is on the sinner's ability to make a choice even the wrong choice, as much as Christ's attractive call. More common than poems that deal with children are those that look at common objects made by people. Among the three candle poems in the collection, the simplest, the fly at the candle, imagines a fly in a combat with the candle. But the, the more it attempts to extinguish the light, the more it merely burns itself against a light impervious to its attacks. In Upon the Sight of a Pound of Candles Fallen to the Ground, 
It's the name of one poem. Uh, a wise person who drops candles in the dark is urged to take another candle from above and light it so that he can see to pick the others up. The first lit candle in the comparison is Christ. And while this image of Christ is deeply embedded in Christian tradition, the variation of a theological commonplace shows Bunyan at his most interesting in the collection. The child is invited not just to recognize the comparison, but to be delighted in the connection, one that he or she might not have seen before. It is in meditation on a candle, upon the candle, um, which is a longer poem, as you can see. It's actually cut off at several spots. Uh, Bunyan demonstrates his facility with invention, the ability to find not just one, but many comparisons for a single subject. This is a real show-off piece. The poem is 65 lines long and offers 21 different metaphors, most of which involve the candle's flame as grace, the wick as the soul, the flesh, or sorry, the wax as flesh, and the surrounding darkness as sin. Here, most comparisons occupy just a couplet, two lines, with the observation in the first, in the first line, and the comparison in the second. So, but candles in the wind are apt to, to flare, and Christians in a tempest to despair. This is the observation, and this, the comparison. The flame also with smoke attended is, and in our holy lives there is much amiss. Sometimes a thief will candlelight annoy, and, and lust do seek our graces to destroy. One can understand the early historian of children's literature, F.J. Harvey Dutton's suggestion that Bunyan almost tortured his mind to find comparisons. <laughs> but there is more in this poem of the virtuoso than the tortured man. How many comparisons can he manage on a candle and still hold the attention of the child? The last comparison introduces a difference both in form and in matter. The man now lays him down upon his bed. The wick yields up its fire, and so is dead. The candle now extinct is, but the man, by grace, not up to glory, there to stand. Stand. <laughs> I don't even see them. <laughs> yeah. Here Bunyan identifies the limits of the emblem. A candle is not like a man's life when it is over, because a man, or a child, or a woman, can expect a second lighting. Many of the other objects made by people in the collection, the majority of which come in the second half, are presented as either morally neutral or wholly good. In Upon a Sheet of White Paper, uh, for instance, the paper can be subject unto the foulest pen or fairest, and it will show freely to its readers anything written on it, whether would that be wisdom or blot. The looking glass in Upon a Looking Glass can reflect our faults, but only if we are willing to see them. Watches, penny lobes, spectacles, and medicine are all offered as only potentially good. What matters is the use to which they are put. So a book for boys and girls, and music for children. Such in the case, 
such is the case, as I just mentioned, uh, in the companion poems on musical instruments, which demonstrate a delight in music. Indeed, two poems in the collection are prefaced with simple musical notation. We saw one earlier. Here's the first half of Upon a Skillful Player on an Instrument. He that can play well on an instrument will take the ear and captivate the mind with mirth or sadness, for that it, it is bent thereto to mu as music in it, place doth find. But if one hears that hath therein no skill, as often music lights of such a chance, of its brave notes they soon be weary well, and there are some who neither sing nor dance. Upon an instrument of music in an unskillful hand suggests a similar idea. There is nothing wrong with the instrument in this analogy, nor is there a fault in good music or in the desire to hear it. Instead, the instrument has the power to provide good, but in an untrained hand, it cannot produce what is wanted. The comparison in this case is to someone new in the church, the unlearned novices and things divine who abuse the Bible and unsavory are. In the earlier poem, the comparison makes a good gospel minister the musician, whose skillful music may nonetheless fall in ears unable to perceive the music. In both, music is to be desired. It is like good gospel preaching. It is like a skillful reading of scripture. Nowhere in the collection is Bunyan's pleasure in music more intriguingly teased out than in Upon a Ring of Bells. In Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his spiritual autobiography, which was published 20 years before this book, he had recounted the anxiety he had felt at pursuing his delight in church bell ringing. So this is what he wrote. Now you must know that before this I had taken much delight in ringing, but my conscience beginning to be tender, I thought that such a practice was but vain, and therefore forced myself to leave it, yet my mind hankered. Wherefore I should go to the steeple house and look on, though I durst not ring. But I thought this did not be become religion neither, yet I forced myself and would look on still. But quickly after I began to think, sorry, that's think, not thing, uh, how if one of the bells should fall. By the end of the account, the young Bunyan is forced to flee lest the whole steeple fall on him. The combination of the intensity of delight with his novice's anxiety about indulging in vanity culminates in the most memorable image of a sincere lover of religion and bells forced to run from an imaginary calamity. Twenty years later, his long poem on the bell ringers, these are um, some selections from it, uh, suggests a milder, more positive view of the value of the bells in their music. Now, instead of being threatened by the steeple's imagined collapse, the speaker is the steeple. So here... My body is the steeple where they hang. My grace is they which do ring every bell. Nor is there anything gives such a tang when by these ropes these ringers ring them well. The bells are still threatened by naughty boys who would ring badly or for the wrong reasons. 
Bunyan still takes pleasure in the music of the bells and ends with a fervent desire, should it, should it be appropriate, to continue his enjoyment of that music. O oh Lord, if thy poor child might have his will, and might his meanings freely to thee tell, he never of this music has his fill. There's nothing to him like thy ding-dong bell. <laughs> the voices of the bells must have room to swing and ring because it is in silence that the tinkling voice of vice, his quote, uh, is heard. Silence, not music, is the devil's true medium. Human activity and creations occupy about half the collection, as I said, but Bunyan shows the strongest appreciation of beauty in his poems of comparison to the natural world and its creatures, which is the second kind of poem characterizing the collection, a book for boys and girls and the natural world. Nature is not always benign, of course. Some, some of the liveliest poems in the collection are those in which a natural creature becomes an exemplum for the child to avoid. And Bunyan is at his satirical best in these comparisons. Large-mouthed frogs are hypocrites. Overfed swine will have their arrogance corrected by the knife. Playful larks are tempted by the fowler Satan. Moles prefer the darkness to the light. And bees, most surprisingly, are like sins, which must be killed before they can say, we can safely get the honey. Every creature from the lowly blowfly to the horse is invoked to demonstrate some danger to the budding Christian child. The behavior of some dumb creatures can be emulated as well as avoided. And in this, Bunyan has good med sorry, medical, biblical, biblical precedent to follow. From lions to locusts, Proverbs offers instruction by ex encouraging examination of the animal world. While neither lions nor locusts were indigenous, English species, <laughs> Bunyan does take two of his subjects from Proverbs, the ant and the spider, as well as the general instruction to look to natural creatures, for example. The ant in Proverbs 6 verse 6, 6 verse 6 is the schoolmaster, the creature best able to instruct the sluggard on good work habits. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, this is from Proverbs, consider her ways and be wise which, having no guide, overseer, or ruler, provideth her food in the summer, and gathereth her food in the harvest. Now compare this to Bunyan's poem, Upon the Pissmire, uh, which is an ant, <laughs> if you didn't know that. Um, must we go to the Pissmire, go must we unto the Pissmire go to school to learn of her in summer, to provide for winter next ensuing? Man's a fool, or silly ants would not be made his guide. But sluggard, is it not a shame for thee to be outdone by pissmires? Prithee here, their works too will thy condemnation be, when at the judgment seat thou shalt appear. But since thy God did, doth bid thee to her go, obey, her ways consider, and be wise. The pissants tell thee, will what thou must do, Sorry, the pissants tell me, tell thee, will what thou must do, and set the way to life before thine eyes. Here the ant is not merely a good example for its industriousness. It is a reproach to humans who must be taught by such a lowly creature. 
The poem is an adaptation, but also a commentary on Proverbs, one that emphasizes how base humans must be to need such instruction. Part emblem, part reminder of the scriptural basis for Bunyan's method, the poem counteracts any reluctance on the part of its readers to learn from lowly creatures. The same encouragement to shame or humility is given in the extraordinary dialogue between the sinner and the spider, which takes its starting point from Proverbs 30, verse 28, but develops the comparison with the virtuosity of the candle poems. Here the sinner has trouble accepting advice from the spider, which he variously, variously calls venomed, sorry, venomed, the dregs, scum, and dross, and threatens to crush beneath her feet, his feet. In Proverbs, the comment on the spider is brief, given alongside three others that are little on the earth, but are yet exceeding wise. The ants are people not strong, yet they prepare their meat in the summer. The colonies are but a feeble folk, yet make they their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth, all of them by bands. The spider taketh hold with her hands, and is in king's palaces. Bunyan poems deal with, deals with that last suggestion. We find spiders even in the palaces of kings, and expands on the idea. Uh, I am a spider, yet I can possess the palace of a king, where happiness so much abounds. Nor when I do go thither, do they ask what or whence I come, or whither I make my hasty travels. No, not they. They let me pass, and I go on my way. I seize the palace, do with hands take hold of doors, of locks, or bolts. Yea, I am bold, when, when in to clamor up upon the throne. <laughs> the spider has greater freedom than most of us and therefore greater happiness but the most important thing is the difference between an ugly spider who keeps the rules of his creation and the sinner who is created in God's image but whose sins have made him uglier than the spider a creature of integrity the spider's instruction increases in length and persuasiveness until, in the end, the sinner is forced to concede. Um, is it here? No. Thou art my monitor, I am a fool. They learn, they learn nay. Sorry. Thou art my monitor, I am a fool. They learn nay. That to spiders go to school. They learn nay. Some of the, like, sentence construction is... Takes a moment. <clears throat> Uh, in fact, the spider might even give us the motto for most of the collection. Oh, this is not right. Hang on. Uh, it's just down here. I was made for thy profit. Do not fear me. But if thy God thou wilt not hearken to, what can the swallow, ant, or spider do? Yet I will speak, I can but be rejected. Sometimes great things by small means are affected. If Bunyan has a favorite part of the book of nature to read and reread, it is the sun's position in the sky. Six poems deal with, very, with different views of the sky at various times. One, one before and two just at sunrise, two in the morning, one in the lowering, 
one affair, and a final one at sunset. In each, we see a careful reading of the sky and a variety of ways to equate the sun, S-U-N, with the sun, S-O-N. Taken as a sequence, the meditations upon the day show, if not a temporal, then a spiritual progression from uncertainty through security to a warning about the end of life. In the first, Meditations Upon People of Day, uh, the comparison is with those who are first possessed of grace. I oft, though it be peep of day, don't know whether tis night, whether tis day or no. I fancy that I see a little light that cannot yet distinguish day from night. I hope, I doubt, but steady yet, steady yet I be not. I am not at a point the sun I see not. Thus tis with such who grace but now possessed, they know not yet if they are cursed or blessed. The poem identifies a liminal space, a threshold, over which the new convert must pass, but through which she is unsure about her status, saved or not. That space of insecurity, suspected, hoping, but yet not knowing, interested Bunyan very much, both as a Christian and as a Christian preacher. Those moments of drama even after the crisis of conversion. The simplicity of the shared experience is especially good here. The rising of the sun is recognizable literally every day and shared. That same sense of uncertainty about when the day has changed places with night would work as well at the end of day. But Bunyan, of course, wants to illustrate a beginning, not an ending. And the paralleling of simple phrases, I hope, I doubt, leaves the speaker in a state of balance, neither in day nor in night. Although the second poem, Upon a Lowering Morning, would seem to be more threatening than the first, in fact, that same sense of balance, of hovering at a threshold, operates in this poem as well. Here the mix of light and dark is caused by clouds that, to the traveler, may threaten slabby rain or snow. And having lived in England, I think I know what slabby rain might be. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when in the poem it does rain, the speaker changes his attitude toward both rain and the apparently lowering red of the clouds. The same mixed sky, the comparison tells us, can bring both a sense of grace and sense of sin. The next two poems, Upon the Sun's Reflection, Upon the Clouds in a Fair Morning, a long title, and Meditations Upon Day Before Sunrising, emphasize greater security. The sun in the clouds recalls the saints in heaven to the speaker in the first, while in the second, the possessors of grace are as eager to see Christ's face as those who see, look to see the sunrise. The fifth, the most confident, identifies the point at which there is no question anymore. The sun has risen just as the sun, S-O-N, has. Not until the last is there a hint of warning. In Of the Going Down of the Sun, those who have misspent their summer day are left. Sorry. Those who have misspent their summer day are left to mourn the loss of the sun where the day when the day is inevitably over. The poems about the sun and the day taken together focus on mourning, appropriately for poems addressed to those in the first days of life. 
and on the optimistic idea that clouds notwithstanding, the sun is there and always rises. Though they may read neatly as a sequence, no two of these poems are printed together, and so even the most apparently complementary poems are separated rather than grouped. Another early scholar of children's literature, Warren Wooden, argued for a complicated system in the arrangement of verses, concluding that the pattern in the original collection was meant to bring children gradually to an understanding of how to read, a system largely obscured when later editions omitted dozens of the original poems. Um, such a system for increasing a, spirit, a child's spiritual literacy may underlie the collection, but subjects and comparisons seem more interspersed, chosen for the sake of a pleasing variety for a childhood, childhood reader who is easily bored. Thanks.